0: Hey, hey, and welcome back to Matters. I'm Tessa Veria, your host, and today we have the pleasure of talking with Daniel Harvey. Daniel is an NHMRC Early Career Research Fellow in the area of persistence pain, based at the University of Southern Australia in the Mind in Body Research Group. During this episode, we discuss pain. Yes, that is it. Pain in the brain, pain and scans, pain and your treatment. Without further ado, welcome to Matters, Daniel Harvey.
1: Tessa, thanks for having me. Very happy to be here.
0: Daniel, before I jump into our podcast of why pain and what excites you really about it, because it is a massive, massive topic and I always envy people that have picked this as their pathway to go. So why pain for you and what excites you about it?
1: Yeah, good question. I guess, on one hand, it doesn't excite me at all. I, I don't like experiencing <laughs> it myself, and I don't really Look, like that- seeing it. And I don't really like seeing it in others either. Um, but I guess what excites me is, I guess, the possibility of discovering new things that mm. might help us see less of it in the world, and in the same token, helping to share what we do know about pain so that others can better manage it as well. Um, I spent my clinical life, which started in 2007, as a, a musculoskeletal and chronic pain physio. So I guess it also excites me because I've seen it, I've felt it with my hands, I've witnessed some of the the weird aspects of it and the strange presentations that may be a little bit difficult yes. to explain. And it also excites me because perception excites me. And to me, perception or conscious experience is perhaps the most interesting frontier of science because I think Mm. we understand such a little amount about how it is that our experience our conscious experience is actually generated and and obviously pain is a a conscious experience so I guess studying pain is also a way to study perception
0: which is a really interesting thing and I think it's becoming into the forefront of people now. That perception of people's pain really does alter that. And I know that we will chat about that a little bit later in the podcast for you. Is there a reason why you decided to pick pain as your area of research? Is it because you wanted to see that being a little bit more understood or was it a gap for you when you were a clinician?
1: It definitely is that. It's also a little bit where I came from. So I did my training in Adelaide, which is the home of... Uh, Neu Group and uh, David Mm. Butler. So I had that really leading pain science knowledge fed to me from my earliest days as a training as a physio. And while I was studying my master's of musculoskeletal and sports, Lorimer Mosley moved to University of South Australia where I was studying. So it's a little bit of serendipity there as well. (laughs) Given my interest and Lorimer arriving at that time, I couldn't not sign up for a, for a PhD there. So yeah, a little bit of interest, (laughs) a little bit of serendipity.
0: Absolutely. I can fully understand that. Now, I feel like pain is such this broad topic for us and there are so many avenues that we're all looking at and I'll try and keep it along the lines of things that will help our myotherapies or our clinicians through there. Now, you've authored a blog which is about fear avoidance method and the variations of that opinion that is in the topic and how clinicians are using that as well. In terms of therapists, does the concept of exposing clients to fear previously painful movements or things that they perceive as being painful as a rehabilitation still hold validity for them and that perception of it?
1: Yeah, it does. It definitely does, Tessa. I think maybe not for everyone. Mm. I visited a a clinic in the Netherlands that basically only uses exposure therapy as a management strategy, but they have a referral pathway that first identifies patients who express a certain degree of fear and avoidance of activity so i think it's uh, it's like anything it's it's trying to match our treatments to the specific impairments or needs of an of an individual in front of us but i think it's a very natural part of being human that we learn what it is that hurts we learn to avoid those things because we don't like pain or because we think that that pain means we're causing more damage in the short term, that kind of avoidance is normal and it might even be a good thing because mm. it might pr- protect an injury. But if yeah, we can, yeah, exactly. But if we continue to avoid things that we don't need to, perhaps because injury healing has progressed and maybe even we're still sore. So maybe that sensitivity hasn't wind down at the same rate that the tissues have, have healed. Um, but we can end up in a, in a situation where we're avoiding things that we don't need to. And we might find ourselves in what the fear avoidance model describes a bit dramatically as a vicious cycle (laughs) where um, (laughs) perhaps because of avoidance, we become more weak. We withdraw from things that give us meaning and keep us socially engaged. And somewhere in that pathway, people can end up weak. They can even end up um, depressed. And then those things Mm. can then predispose a continuation of, of the problem so exposing people to things that they think are causing them damage and helping them realize that they're safe is a way to help them re-engage with those things that perhaps they're unnecessarily avoiding and of course mm. in that process we might help them we might need to help them understand why it's safe perhaps we need to share with them the story of healing and how that mm. progresses re- reliably and. Perhaps you need to share the story of a central sensitization if someone really just feels really broken. But for your clinical assessment, you work out that to a large degree, they're sore because they're sensitized, not because they have a, a problem that still needs protecting. Mm. So I think any of us clinicians can take on exposure, yep. which can even fit into graded activity. And I don't know if you've heard the term psychologically informed practice. It's becoming pretty popular lot Of
0: people don't really know,
1: <laughs> know what, what it means or how to do it, but if helping people worry less about yes. their pain and you're helping them re engage with things that they're worried might be still causing them harm, then you're doing a substantial and important part of psychologically informed practice. And I think that's a really nice thing to share because we can all do that without feeling like we're. Out of our depth because we don't have a lot of psychological training.
0: Yeah, it really sounds like, you know, part of that fear avoidance is and also people educating their clients to understand how pain is kind of presenting in their body and what that means for them as a person individually, that a lot of that comes back to the education or. Um, communicating with the client about their own pain or what it means for them.
1: Absolutely. And I don't think we did that enough. And I don't think we ask patients enough, what do you think's causing your pain? Because just with that simple question, sometimes you get back sometimes simple, sometimes strange responses that (laughs) you can easily help them come to a different understanding, which at the very least might help them worry less and sleep better.
0: And do you think it's also by us asking them what do you think causes their pain also validates the pain they are feeling as real for them?
1: It definitely can. Maybe sometimes the response you get back is actually someone thinks it's all in their head and actually you need to break down that it's not. And I hope no one is, you know, making you feel like you're making this up because there are very good reasons why people have pain even when there's not, traceable problem in the tissues I mean there's almost always something in the tissues that is contributing in some way but yeah I think that's yeah I think you've identified an important
0: component of that. On the topic of us And tissue damage and whether that is directly related to pain we often get the questions of should I get a scan so I can understand where my pain is coming from how can we as therapists have meaningful conversations with our clients about medical imaging and the place that they have in us understanding pain
1: yeah it's another one that's a little tricky Mm. you're probably probably aware that clinical guidelines tend to Caution against the overuse of imaging.
0: Absolutely,
1: I'm actually someone that, because of early imaging, a bone cancer was was picked up. So, <sighs> we definitely also have to be aware of red flags and make sure that mm. imaging is used when it's needed. Mm-hmm. But I think what we can really do is be honest with clients and and explain that if there are no indications for imaging, that you know guidelines caution against that us using imaging in cases like this for good reasons some people like to think it it's a reassurance tool that you Hmm. that you might want to do a scan to rule out problems in the tissues so that you don't have to worry but the the problem with that line of thinking is that most of us will have something show up
0: absolutely on on a scan
1: (laughs) once you're aware of that once you've read the scan that says you've got the disc bulge or the degeneration, it's yes, very hard. That's a to, classic. It, yeah, it's a, it's very hard to unsee that, and even even if we explain that, you know, many of those changes are normal age related changes and um, don't necessarily um, cause pain. And people without pain have those, and people with pain have those. We still can't rule out the possibility that that could have a negative psychological impact, And so I would just be honest with someone and say, "If I was you, I just wouldn't want to know what's in my, in my <laughs> tissues."
0: <laughs> because, right, I'm just going to I just put the blinkers on. I don't need to know this. <laughs> yeah. And I would
1: just I would, I would make a little bit light of it like that.
0: <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> but
1: take the opportunity, you know, take the intention of imaging to reassure someone and use other ways of reassuring them. So share with them that um, the good news is you don't have any neurological signs, so I'm not worried that there's any significant pinching on nerves. Um, Share with them clinical findings that Mm. suggest they'll have a, a positive outcome or that there's nothing serious going on. Um, and I, I would just encourage people to lean on other ways of reassuring people and perhaps also drop in there that um, imaging doesn't really help us guide management because what we treat are the things that we've, the impairments that we find and the contributing mm. factors that we can identify. We don't actually treat disc bulges and degeneration. We treat yeah, activity and levels and load and muscles and strength and these kinds of things
0: yeah and that's exactly what I was going to suggest in terms of is it better for us explaining to the client that an imaging or medical imaging wouldn't change the treatment I'm going to provide to you anyway and is that a productive conversation that regardless of what comes out in your scan I wouldn't change my treatment and we wouldn't change what we're about to do for you as well
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: Do you think also if a client does go ahead with medical imaging that we are able to sit with them to make sense of the expressions such as degenerative changes or other quite less, you could say, aggressive language or, you know, language that may not be as beneficial to them to explain to them what they are and make them a little bit easier to digest for the client?
1: I think we need to do that we can't assume how people will read the results of their scans, I think. So I do think it's a good exercise to read through it and point out the things that might relate to their symptoms and point out the things Mm. that that we find in people without pain and just try to give a bit more context. I know David Butler likes to to use metaphors like, um, you know, we and our bones grow like trees, you know, Um, so we don't you know we don't grow in a straight line and and the result of that is a bit of a wobbly bit over here and a a bit on the left that looks a bit different to a bit that's on the on the right I don't think we're very good at this but I do think there's there's a positive story to some changes as well Um, like just for example sometimes we see osteophytes around facet joints in the low back and I think One thing that results from that is that the surface area in a joint for load-bearing gets bigger. And so I think sometimes there's a story to tell about the adaptations we see on scans potentially being adaptations to better distribute load. I don't know that they're all all bad, but I think your suggestion to talk about it and give context is probably the right approach.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I like to think of That, you know, I think we often see our little anatomy skeletons and man images that are all over our textbooks when we're learning and they are so symmetrical and perfect and no little pieces come off those and then you see our real humans back and you think, oh my gosh, that is not like that or you see a cadaver and it is like, well... It's really just one giant slab of meat, nothing separated whatsoever that we are human and we are very different and it is okay to have those areas. I do like the path that you've taken with that. Now, something super exciting as well, which anyone that knows me, will know I love pain and anything related to pain. Um, but you have just released a new book in conjunction with Lamor- Lamora Mosley. So particularly pain and the perception and a closer look at why we hurt focuses on all things pain related and perceptions, which I know we've it's come up a little bit for us here. How do we aim to challenge the public's idea of pain? Because I know we're starting to add in now, you know, that Tissue damage doesn't always equal pain and what is our perception and then our individuals' perception very much then changes their pain. How does the new book that you've released and the concepts that you're starting to research through there really then help us get the public to better understand this?
1: I think your intention there is perfect in that one of the things we're trying to do with a lot of this kind of education is to help people understand that pain is about more than just tissues. And given that pain is a perception, one pathway to helping people understand that pain is about more than just the body or even signals from the body Mm. is to explain how perception works. And I think one of the best ways to explain how perception works is to use illusions because different illusions can highlight different characteristics of perception. I guess the traditional pathway to this endpoint of helping people understand that pain is more about more than the body is to explain how central sensitization works, how maybe something about the neuromatrix or processing in the brain, and to describe how these neurophysiological processes can result in pain when there shouldn't be, or more pain when there should be less pain. This, I guess, new way that Lorimer and I have come up with takes a slightly different pathway using illusions. And the the book goes through a series of uh, visual illusions that show different characteristics of perception. And then we link that to some characteristic of pain. And mm. I, I just love this because when you have an illusion in front of you, it's such a clear and confronting example of seeing something differently. And you know that even, even when you know how the illusion works, you still see it. Yes. And so um, I guess I see the illusions as a way of disrupting people's assumptions about how perception and pain yeah. works. And then using that moment in time to share something about pain that matches that illusion or that characteristic of perception that's highlighted by that mm. illusion. So we've got this into a book. I was at the at the time we were writing the book I was also reading books to my two-year-old that had flaps and folds and pull outs and things so <laughs> we've tried <laughs> we've tried to build in some of that interaction where you fold I over
0: love pages that.
1: with holes in it that block out part of the picture that that mean that you see you see the image as it is not as it's not in its illusory yes. form and um, there's illusions that you have to um, flip the book upside down or look at the image from closer or further away to, to demonstrate these different elements. So I guess in that we're also bringing in that we're, as humans, we're, we're active learners. We learn better by yes. engaging and doing things than we do just by hearing or reading.
0: I was about to say it really sounds like you've started to put like a physical touch or a like a like actually manifest pain and perceptions of pain into a physical form we can interact with, which is a hard concept to even put together, but also very groovy to try and interact with pain and that perception of what it is, which is um is such a great thing to get the general public on board with pain.
1: Absolutely. And you know we're clear throughout that we're not suggesting pain is an illusion, but illusions are perceptions and so is pain. And Mm. And perceptions tend to follow similar principles. And so I think there's a there's a lot to learn from illusions in regards to how perception works and how pain works. So yeah, we're excited to have that out and about. And is
0: it is it the same concept as well that if we know pain as a perception, we have the capability to change that perception then?
1: I would say it's not it's not that simple. Yes. Um, <laughs> and the, the analogy to that, as I was saying, was when you know these illusions in the book are illusions, that doesn't mean that you see them differently. Differently. Yeah.
0: But you're but, aware of them being present.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so I think it does a, a couple of things. It just opens the door to different ways of thinking about pain. Yeah. But it does also open the door to the possibility that um, that we can change pain through the things that we do and there's certainly literature suggesting that perceptions can be learned and unlearned at least to a certain degree so yeah this is definitely a message of hope and and some ideas in the book that might lead people to think and do some different things in regards to treating and managing their pain
0: before we go I have one last question and it may be it's a very left field one How much about pain do you think we still don't fully understand?
1: Do you want me to put a percentage on on that?
0: (laughs) (laughs) However you want to answer that, because I always sit and think the more I learn about pain, the more I realise how much there is still left to fully understand. And for someone that um, now that's their profession and it's what you live and breathe, how much do you now realise, is it that we're getting close to that or is there just so much that is unmined for us to know?
1: I probably lean in that direction. I think we're way, way off knowing everything. And there's really exciting things happening in immunology, understanding how the immune system is behaving in the body yeah. and but also in the nervous system. As I hinted at the beginning, we really are at the beginning of understanding how perception works, how our experience is generated by this wet. Hunk of meat in our skulls. Um, so, I think you know, there's new knowledge coming out all the time, which is exciting. But I lean on the side of we have a lot, a lot left to know.
0: I think the, it's that concept of more. You know, the more you think, my gosh, how? Um, I always think about what we knew, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Is someone in 30, 40 years now going to think the same of what we've just figured out as well? Like how much of this is going to be crazy for people in 100 years' time?
1: <laughs> exactly. And if we're lucky, we won't be around to hear them laugh at us.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today, Daniel, and your continued work in um, in the pain field because it is really valuable to us clinicians to constantly hear the developments and how we can best link that back into our treatments and within our, our clinics as well. So thank you for your continued devotion into that area as well. We've been so lucky to be able to have you on today and I thank you so much for all of your knowledge and sharing with us. Thanks for the chat, Tess. Thanks to our listeners for continuing to tune in to Myo Matters. Your support is so greatly appreciated. As always, don't forget to check out our website for upcoming professional development and online resources to help you with your PD. Stay tuned for our next episode of Myo Matters from Myotherapy Australia.